Thank you, Colin, for reading our passage for us. And good morning, friends. It's great to see you. And if you've been away for the half term, I hope you've had a good break. And I know we've got some of our youth group here with us today, so I hope you find this helpful. Let's open with a prayer. Hebrews 3 says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Heavenly Father, please would you be with us now as we sit under your word in 1 Samuel. And may your spirit open our hearts and minds. Please help us to understand your word in a fresh way. And please melt away any hardness in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by asking you a question. When was the last time you were really surprised by something? And I mean something really surprising and unexpected, like maybe that gas explosion in Babbitton a couple months ago. Or maybe you've seen that new Planet Earth documentary, which shows a wild rhino casually walking down a street in a city in Nepal. Or if you like football, I'm sure you were shocked when the underdogs, Leicester, won the Premier League in 2016 at those amazing odds of 5,000 to 1. These unusual events are rare and surprising. But surprising things do happen sometimes. And that's what today's story is about. So let's look at the passage together, and you'll see there are two key sections, as you can see here on slide one. 1 to 13 is about God's choice. Thank you, Andrew. 1 to 13 is about God's choice of David, the king, and ultimately how he points forward to Jesus, the king. And 14 to 23 is about God's sovereignty. We'll spend most of our time on this first point, and it's the anointing of David which forms a new section in the book. You'll remember that in the previous chapters, we saw how the people had chosen Saul as their first king. But despite his good appearances, he did not turn out well. He rejected God, and so God rejected him as king. Our prophet Samuel is disappointed at this, and so our passage starts by God telling him to pick himself up and go to Bethlehem to visit this man called Jesse. Samuel is going to anoint a new king with some oil on the head. But you can just imagine, if he does this while Saul is already king, then this could be seen as like rebellion or even treason against the current king. So God advises Samuel to be discreet and only talk about the sacrifice that he's going to make in Bethlehem. This helps him to be truthful, but not to disclose his whole mission. Once he gets to Jesse's house, you can just imagine the scene because it's, it's like a comedy. It's, it's like a comic scene from Cinderella where each of the stepsisters and others come forward and they try on the glass slipper 
to see if it fits. In the same way, Jesse gets his sons to line up, and of course he presents them in the order of supposed priority and significance, like you can see here on slide two. The firstborn son is Eliab, and so he's presented first because, of course, he is the most important in their culture. Under Jewish custom, he would inherit a double portion, and he's obviously tall and impressive. Even the, Samuel, even the prophet Samuel is deceived in verse 6 because he thinks, surely this is the one that God has chosen. But God says, no, he is not the one. Please have a look with me at verse 7, and you'll see how the Lord explains this. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And it's important to note that that word heart here doesn't just talk about emotions or love. In Scripture, it's much bigger than that. So it's talking about a person's core being, their will, soul, their mind, their, their core self. So after the first son is rejected, then we have this procession of the other sons in front of Samuel. But after each one is rejected, we get to the end of the line, and Samuel realizes the youngest isn't even with them. He wasn't even considered worthy to join them for the feast. He's out tending his father's sheep, and he's completely forgotten about. So he's awkwardly called for. And immediately, God says, this is the one that Samuel is to anoint. This is surprising for everyone in the story and for us as readers this morning. But that's the point. We're meant to understand that it was surprising because David was very ordinary and the least important in people's eyes. Verse 11 and 12, just, they describe him as just a young boy with red complexion. And we don't even learn his name until verse 13. But he's humble and he loves the Lord and the Lord is with him. And he is the one that God has chosen. Let's just think about this for a moment. Can this surprising event really be true? And, and does it make sense? Well, we know that God often works through weak and insignificant people. Just think about how Moses and Jonah lacked confidence. Or we could think about Jesus' disciples and how they were simple fishermen or despised tax collectors. And more recently, we could think of many missionaries who have been used by God to further his kingdom. Just think of Hudson Taylor and David Livingston and how these ordinary people were used by God and served the Lord in Africa and in China. In the world's eyes, all these people were nothing special. But God empowered them and used them for his purposes. And that's because God's way is often surprising and different 
to our expectations. We naturally think that it's only the rich and the powerful who can get things done. But that's not God's way. Instead, he empowers people to work for him and do things through his strength because that's the way that he gets the honor and the glory and not man. And that's what verse 13 is talking about. When it says that the Spirit rushed upon David, it was empowering him to do things for God. Now let's move on and think, how does this apply to us? And, and what difference does it make? As we stand here today, we're looking back in time at this passage, and, and we need to put on our proper reading glasses, like you can see on slide three. As we look back at this passage, we're peering through the lens of Christ's work and fulfillment and his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago. And that's the important point to remember here because it brings meaning and illumination to our passage as the Holy Spirit helps us to understand it. So the first point to note in this story is that it's about God's choice of David as king. And so this passage is not about us. Often our first instinct when we read a story like this in the Old Testament is to place ourselves in the story and, and we want to be like David or we want to try and be like Daniel and be brave. But that's not quite right and it forgets the lens of Christ through which we look at this story. The better and correct approach is to see that this passage is about how God chose and empowered David as king, and also how David's role points forward to Jesus. Saul has been rejected. David has been chosen. So our application is to recognize that the king that we naturally want, like Saul, is not the one we need. God is showing us that he chooses better than we do. We often despair at our political leaders and others in society. But the truth is that human leaders will always fail because they all have limitations and failings, just like you and me. So that means if we want the perfect leader, then we need someone from the outside. We need someone beyond humanity who's not tainted by our failings. That's why the story of David is meant to remind us of someone greater. David the shepherd king points to Christ, the ultimate shepherd king. We generally don't know our Bible well enough, but it describes many prophecies and fulfillments on how David prefigures Christ. For instance, the prophesied Messiah would come from David's line. Both would be born in Bethlehem, and both were from the tribe of Judah. Both had the Spirit descend on them, and David was a shepherd, while Jesus was the good shepherd. And finally, both are chosen by God to be the shepherd king. So that's the first important point here. 
seeing that God knows the kind of king we need and that David's role points forward to Jesus. Now, having understood that, we can move on to the second point, which is about the principle of the heart. And as a reminder of where we are, you can see that on slide four. There's an important principle that's seen right across Scripture, and it's that God is not interested in your appearance. He's not interested in your, your, your age or your status, you know, whether you're 15 years old or whether you're 50. What he is concerned with is your heart. Is it dedicated to him? Is your heart aligned to him or to the other things in this world? As you sit here this morning, his laser eyes are looking at you and they cut right through your externals and straight to your heart. And you can see that depicted on our next slide, slide five, where we see how people just look on the outside appearance, but God's eyes are able to pierce straight through and look at your heart. And this makes sense because if the Lord is able to create and sustain the universe with all its complexity, then of course he could do the simpler thing, the lesser thing of just peering into our hearts. So we can fool other people with our smiles and our good looks, and we can even fool ourselves and pretend that it's all okay. But we cannot fool God. He sees deep down into our hearts. As Paul reminds the Galatian church, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He knows all. He sees all. Now, I know this can be a bit uncomfortable and unnerving when we start to think of it because we know that we've all failed and none of us can live up to his standards. We know that we have failed in different ways and our fallen state leads to a restlessness of heart. We respond by trying to cover it up and papering over it in different ways. I'm in my 40s and in that classic decade of the midlife crisis where us men begin to realize our limitations and uh, we long for something a bit different. And so we respond by doing crazy things like buying a yellow sports car or going bungee jumping while blindfolded. But jokes aside, actually what we're doing is the same of all, as all of us. What we're trying to do is fill that void in our heart. We're trying to fill that gap and look for something different. We forget that this restlessness of heart and being dissatisfied is our natural state in a fallen world. And nothing here on earth will satisfy us. All our retail therapy and luxury treats are only temporary and futile. They only address the symptoms for a little while and not the source of the problem. So in keeping with our surprising theme, here's another surprise. Every attempt that we make to fill that void will fail. It's just never going to happen. 
It's like trying to boil the ocean. It's just an impossibility. It's impossible to fill that void by the next achievement or the next relationship because sure enough, we'll soon be back in the same position with the same heart that's longing for something different. So this dissatisfaction with God's gifts and our rebellion and sin creates a huge chasm between us and God. And there's no way to bridge this gap, as you can see on our next slide, slide six. We've got a real problem and no way to get back to God. But despite our failings and our rebellion, in his love, God graciously provides a way to bridge this gap between us. In the next slide, seven, we see that Jesus' death on the cross provides the bridge that we didn't have before. We see that we have a bridge that helps us across the gap and has access to God again. When we repent and place our trust in Christ, our relationship with the Lord is restored. It's like we're given a new start with a new heart that loves him and wants to please him. In fact, this change is so radical that scripture describes it as like removing our heart of stone, which is just spiritually dead, and replacing it with a heart of flesh that's alive and flourishing. And that's how vivid the change is when we move from being inwardly focused and instead look out and upward to him in dependence and trust. And that's another surprising thing. Suddenly our heart has changed and we find joy and satisfaction in God himself, in our relationship with him. Now, I know that this might sound a bit abstract and improbable, but this is the testimony of faithful believers down through the centuries and millennia. These other things in the world just become less and less important to us. And over time, our heart becomes more and more satisfied in him. Okay, so let's move on now and think about two practical examples impacting our hearts here in Collinton. We've spent a lot of time last term and this term looking at godly leadership. So let's think about two other examples this morning. Firstly, in this modern age of uh, uh, digital and online, many of us spend a lot of time on the web and online. So let's think about our use of social media like Facebook and Instagram. When you think about it, this is the classic example of how we're naturally impressed by external appearances. There's lots of posed and photoshopped photos on there and fake lifestyles, which are really not helpful. A lot of it is fake and not real, and this leads to unhelpful comparisons. I had a minor operation last year, and my surgeon told me that initially he started training to be a cosmetic surgeon. But he soon stopped and switched to a different speciality because he saw how fake and sad it all was. He said it was so sad because it wasn't just older women who were coming to him for these treatments and surgeries, but young women 
in the prime of life, and some even in their early 20s. These women had been so influenced by comparisons to these fake profiles and influences that they felt ugly and they needed to change their appearance. I'm sure most of them were perfectly fine. And if only they had realized that the God of the universe loves them and doesn't care about these external appearances. So the next time you're on social media, please just stop and think for a minute. Is this really real? And is this helpful? Secondly, for families, there's implications here for how we conduct family life and what we emphasize. If we parents teach our children attitudes like respect and honesty and kindness, and we focus on these more than external looks and beauty, then our ch children will learn to prioritize these, these, these things. They will learn to have a right respect for God and a heart that loves him and is focused on the right things in life. And if I can speak directly to the youth just now, please remember that God is looking at your heart, not your parents' hearts. It's no good thinking you're a Christian because you're from a good family or your parents are Christians. Instead, please remember that God has no grandchildren. He's looking at your heart and he wants you to respond to him and to love him. Now, there's lots of other examples and ideas that we could look at, but I hope you can see the big picture. God is not concerned with appearances, but he is concerned with your heart. So that's the main message this morning in 1 to 13. Let's move on now to the shorter section of 14 to 23, which is about the sovereignty of God. There's a couple unusual things in this passage, so let's deal with them first. On first look, it might concern us to see that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul in verse 14. But what it's talking about is the removal of his empowering for his role as king. We don't know if Saul was a genuine believer or not, but this verse is not talking about his salvation being removed. And we know that because elsewhere we learn that those who are truly regenerated and part of God's family cannot lose their salvation. This is a bit of a side point to our passage, so if you have a query on this, please do speak to the ministry team or to me afterwards. We also see that God sent a harmful spirit to torment Saul. And this seems a bit odd and, and counter to what we know of a pure and holy God. But we need to understand that, that, that sometimes God does use agents like this to accomplish his purposes. And in fact, that's how in control he is. That's how sovereign he is, that he's working different things together and is able to overrule in events. We see that in the story of Job and Joseph and elsewhere in the Bible where God is working behind the scenes to orchestrate things for his purposes. So 
back in our passage, we see that word gets back to Saul that David is good at playing the harp. And so Saul asked Jesse if David could come and serve in his court. David gains Saul's favor, and he rises to become his personal attendant and armor bearer. And his, his music soothes and refreshes Saul, and eventually that harmful spirit leaves him. This little passage of David entering Saul's service might seem mundane and ordinary, but it has a purpose. It shows how God is working behind the scenes. It shows how he is always orchestrating things for his purposes. And in the same way, God is now using David's position in Saul's court so that he can learn important things, and he's preparing him for later on, when it's his turn. So let's close now by reminding ourselves of the big picture, and we can see our journey summarized for us on slide eight. We started with a question about a surprising event. That surprising event that you're picturing in your mind was unexpected, but nevertheless, it was real, and it did happen. In the same way, we saw that the story of God choosing David is surprising and unexpected. But that's how God often works. He brings down the arrogant and the proud like Saul, and he lifts up the humble and the ordinary like David, because that's how God gets the glory, not man. God chooses better than we do. And this story is about David, not about us. He was God's chosen king, and he points forward to Jesus. We then looked at how God looks at our heart and isn't fooled by appearances. We naturally focus on ourselves, but he wants us to look out and up to him in dependence each day. We also saw that Jesus is the king we need. He's the good shepherd who looks after us and restores our heart. And finally, we saw how God is sovereign and he's always working all things together for his purposes. Let's close now with a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this surprising story and how it reminds us that you choose better than we do. Please help us to remember how David points forward to Christ and how he lovingly laid down his life for us. And please may your Holy Spirit work in us and reorient our hearts this week. Please align our hearts with yours so that we gradually treasure you more than the other things in this world. Amen.